Have you ever been on probation? I think for a lot of us in our culture, when we hear that word, we think of the criminal justice system. But most of us are, are, I won't try to estimate numbers, many of us um, have not been uh, in a situation where we've been dealing with the criminal justice system, but I think a lot of us have been on probation of one kind or another, maybe in a work setting or maybe in a school setting. Uh, Years ago, my second job out of college, I got put on probation. I was, uh, I had kind of upgraded, I was ambitious, I had uh, worked for one company for a while and then I found a chance to move to a different company with better, better, uh, uh, everything. And so I did there, um, and I worked for about six months and then one day my manager called me into his office and he told me that I wasn't going to be working for him anymore. I had been moved to a different part of that business unit and I was going to be doing an entirely different function in the um, company because he wasn't satisfied with my work product. Now, it was frustrating to me um, because because that was the first indication I had, honestly, in six months, he had never given me a hint that he was anything but happy with my work. But now suddenly I had been transferred to a different boss and had a different function. Now, with uh, 30 years of hindsight, I'm a little better able to see, and I can understand maybe I was um, not meeting his expectations in that role. Um, But still, it stung when he said, think of this, I quote, as a warning and an opportunity. Well, it was a warning don't ever work for this guy again. And he had already arranged for that. But it was also an opportunity. Um, it was, it was an opportunity to, to work in a different part of the company. I had been involved in uh, customer-facing um, uh, software, and I started working in a different area. And actually, my career probably began to really flourish there um, when I began working more in-house software. So it was, it was both a warning and an opportunity. Um, but maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe you have been in the same situation where you have been the person that your boss called in and said, essentially, um, you're not cutting it. And uh, they, they told you that you were not meeting expectations, that you were underperforming. And if that was you, well, it's no fun, is it? But maybe you've been on the other side of the desk. Maybe you've been the person who had to call in HR and you've got them sitting there with you or maybe a union representative or whatever it is and you're having that difficult conversation with somebody who is being put in some kind of probationary situation. Maybe you've been in that situation. Or maybe, you know, maybe this has not been your work experience, but you can remember that class, that class that got you put on probation at school. For me, it was calculus three, calculus two, and I learned that you can pass calculus two if you're willing to do it three times. So, I did, and I went on, and I even passed calculus three, but calculus two stumped me. Um, and, uh, and I managed to hold on to my academic standing, but I did lose some financial aid, so it was not without effect. Uh, so, I have been on probation a number of times, and of course, when I was doing prison ministry, um, one of the things I saw was parole violators returned to prison. One of, one of, essentially everything in prison ministry is depressing. But one of the things that was most depressing is somebody would leave. They would have completed their stretch, you know, they'd worked on their front number and their back number. They got their back number and they're let go. And then they would be gone for a week or two weeks or a month. And then they would be back because New Jersey is a small state. And, uh, if you live in Newark, 
the temptations to go over and do something in Manhattan are right there. So you go across a state line, and if you get picked up, you're a parole violator. If you live in Camden and you go to Philadelphia, you've crossed the state line and you're a parole violator. And it was so depressing to see people return to prison because of a parole violation. I think many of us can relate at some level to the idea of being on parole, being on probation. And so when we read in Scripture that God is a God of grace, I think for a lot of us we wonder, what does that look like for Christians? Are we being put on probation? Do we have some kind of a parole? What does it mean that Jesus came to forgive sins? Does it mean that I'm now in some kind of a performance improvement plan? Well, we're going to be looking at um, the uh, story of Peter and how Peter was um, uh, one of the people... Uh, who we can most see, uh, we can most easily see what the resurrection accomplishes. Last week, if you were here for Easter, we, we looked at the way that Jesus did not simply come to escape death. Jesus didn't escape death, Jesus defeated death. And we believe that because Jesus defeated death, we have forgiveness and we have redemption, and we believe that Jesus reconnected us to God. The one thing Jesus didn't do is he didn't get death to stop lying. So death is not going to come to you. The the power that makes everything go wrong is not going to come to you and say, you know what, Jesus defeated me. I don't have any mojo left at all. Death is going to keep lying. Death's going to keep saying, you're a screw-up. You always were a screw-up. You're just like your father. You're just like your mother. Death is going to continue to lie to you and tell you that there's no hope for you. And so it can be hard for us to imagine What does it mean that Jesus truly defeated death? What does it mean to live into that reality? And because our imaginations fail, we're going to actually look at a case study. We're going to be looking at the story of Peter for the next couple of weeks. We're going to see what it looks like in a real person's life that he was redeemed and found mercy and forgiveness with God. And what we're going to see today is it's not probation. So if you've got your scriptures, what I'd like to do is uh, begin looking at this passage. Um, so we're looking at, um, my, my Bible has a little heading. We talked about headings before, but I think it's right in this case. It says epilogue. Why do they call this the epilogue? Chapter 21 of John's uh, biography of Jesus is sometimes called an epilogue. And the reason for that is because John kind of finished in chapter 20. In chapter 20, he says, he says, um, I'm basically done here. The disciples saw Jesus do a lot of other stuff, but I've written down everything that's important so you may believe. And then he says, oh, and by the way, and that's where we pick up the story in chapter 21. And I don't know why that is. I wonder, honestly, if the reason that he does this is because he wanted to tell people about Jesus. He wanted to say, what does it mean that Jesus came and lived and died and rose for us? And I think what happened is he wrote his book. He wrote the first 20 chapters and people kept telling him afterwards, yeah, but what about Peter? What does it mean to be forgiven? And I I wonder if maybe the reason that John added this epilogue is to show us what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be set free from the power of death what it means to live connected to God. So, chapter 21, it says, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, as you remember, is in the north part of the Holy Land. Uh, Jesus was crucified and died and buried and rose 
in Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of the Holy Land. So, so Jesus has been in Jerusalem. He was like many other Jews. He went to Jerusalem for the festival. There's a pilgrimage and he went there and that's where he was arrested and that's where he was crucified. That's where he rose. But on Easter morning, he told some of his disciples, he said, uh, in fact, he told, uh, one of the angels told the, um, the women, tell, tell the, pass this message on to Jesus. He said, I will see you in Galilee. So Jesus said, I'll see you in Galilee, and that's where we're going to see him here in a minute. Why Galilee? Well, Jesus was not from Jerusalem. You know, people saw Jesus in Jerusalem, but there was crowds, thousands, tens of thousands of people had come for the festival. And Jesus was just kind of one more face they saw that week when he was crucified. And when he was raised, they would say, yeah, I guess that might be him. It kind of looks like him. I don't know. I only saw him that one time. But in Galilee, everybody knew Jesus. Jesus had ministered there for three years. Jesus had walked around that part of the country, healing people, doing miracles, teaching people about God. Lots of people in Galilee knew him. And they could say, hey, I heard the story. I heard you were dead, but I'm looking at you, and you look alive to me. Paul says in one of his letters that that uh, at one point, Jesus, the risen Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And I have to believe it happened here in Galilee. So, Jesus appears to them beside the Sea of Galilee. One of the things that we see in the, in the uh, resurrection appearances of Jesus is he comes and goes. Um, there's no rhyme or reason that we can understand. He's just in the room with the disciples. And then later on, he's having a meal with the disciples and he's just gone. So we don't know where Jesus is all the time in the resurrection appearances. But wherever he is, he's not with them right now. And that's where we pick up the story. It says, uh, this is what happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin. I wondered, the twin of whom? Was he a twin of one of the other disciples? Because he's the only one called the twin. And if not, where's his twin? Anyway, um, he gives us these odd little details. He tells us Nathaniel was there and the sons of Zebedee. He never calls them James and John. He always calls them the sons of Zebedee. And two other disciples. He doesn't mention if Andrew is there or Philip. The first two disciples John tells us are Andrew and Philip, but he doesn't mention them. So it's just kind of these odd little details that John supplies. So it's like he's got a good memory, he can picture the scene, and he wants us to see it like we were right there. And that's when Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now some people think that Peter is like, that's it, I'm done with this religious stuff, I'm going back to my old job. Uh, maybe, I don't think so, uh, you can't tell it from the, the language, but I think Jesus, uh, Peter is just saying, look, Jesus comes and goes, he said he would meet us here, I don't see him, I'm going stir crazy, I'm going to go back to my familiar place, I'm going to go back to my comfort zone, because if I'm going to be drumming my thumbs, my, my fingers, you know, if I'm going to be t- twiddling my thumbs, I might as well be doing it on a boat catching fish, because that's a place where I'm comfortable. So, I think that's what he's doing. And the others say, that sounds like a good idea. And you know what, it is a good idea. Because, you know, we come to a place like this, we come to a building like this on Sundays, everybody's got their own reasons, but I think most of us come hoping to have some kind of an encounter with God. We believe we will go out of here uh, trusting God more, believing in God more, that, that we will have had some sense of God's presence here in a way we don't get out in the world. And that's a great thing, and I certainly hope that that's what we achieve. That's, that's what our goal is as worship planners, is to help um, uh, make those sorts of encounters happen. But the reality is you're going to spend a couple of hours a week here, and you're going to spend a whole bunch more out there. And what I would encourage you to do is be like Peter. Watch for God out there. 
because you're going to spend a lot more time out there. And if you have your eyes open, maybe you'll start seeing Jesus at work out in your world, in your everyday experience. So Peter does this. Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And they say, we'll come too. But they don't catch anything. So they fish all night and they caught nothing. At dawn, though, Jesus was standing on the beach, but they didn't know who it was. And he called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? And they said one word, no. And then he said, well, throw out your net on the right side of the boat. Oh, thank you, Jesus. We never thought of the right side of the boat. We were exclusively using the left-hand side of the boat all night long. But Peter says, okay, fine. And so they do. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. We find out later there's 153 fish. And it's then that the disciple that Jesus loved, whoever he is, one of these disciples, he's very modest about the way he puts it. He says, the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Something about this situation, maybe he remembers another miraculous catch of fish. Maybe he recognizes the voice finally. He says, it sounds like somebody. I can't place it. Whatever it is, he says, it's the Lord. And Peter says, you're right, it is. And so Peter puts on his tunic. This word, it means to gird up your tunic. You know, think about the kind of robes they wore in the ancient world. It's not that he's naked. Um, it's that he can't swim in this robe. So he kind of ties it up in a knot around his waist. And then he jumps in the water, swims up to the shore, and then wades up to uh, Jesus. And when he gets there, he sees a charcoal fire on the beach. Now, all of the other accounts... The dis- well, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So he sees a charcoal fire and some fish cooking there. Now, one of the problems we have in listening to this is that we listen to little tiny bursts of, of the scriptures. This may seem like a long reading, but compared to the people in the early church, they would come to gather in worship, and somebody who could read and somebody who had a copy of the, the scriptures would read to them for a great period of time because most people were illiterate. Most people didn't have access to the scriptures. The only way you could ever really learn the Bible was by hearing it. And so they'd hear long chunks of the scriptures. And they would probably still have in their mind, because they probably would have heard it, in chapter 18, there was another charcoal fire. In fact, in the whole New Testament, there's only two charcoal fires mentioned, one of them in chapter 18, one of them here. What happened in chapter 18? Well, Jesus went to the courtyard of the high priest, and he warmed himself over the fire. The other gospel accounts, the other biographies, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say he warmed himself at the fire. John alone has this detail. It was a charcoal fire. And so keep that in your ear as we hear the rest of this. The last time we've heard the word charcoal fire was when Peter was warming himself in the courtyard of the high priest. And a middle school girl comes up and says, hey, you're one of those, aren't aren't you? And he says, not me. Then a while later, somebody else comes up to him. And he says, I don't know the man. And three times he denies Jesus. So when they get there, he finds some breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Jesus says, bring some of the fish. So they drag the fish ashore. And Jesus says, come have some breakfast. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised to the dead. And then after breakfast, Jesus has a talk with Peter. Now, I don't know. Was was this, you know, I've seen this in movies, and it, it, Jesus always kind of takes Peter to one side. Peter, come over here, let's talk. And I don't know if that's what happened. Maybe it was. 
But maybe this is Peter getting outed right there in front of all the other disciples. Hey, Peter, let's talk about Thursday night. Because we don't know if anybody else among the disciples knew what Peter had done. But now they do. Certainly, by the time the gospel accounts are written down, they all record the way Peter denied Jesus. So whether this is the time where Peter had, or people have already know that, Jesus takes Peter to one side and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Love me more than these what? Does he mean... Love me more than these, your, your guys, the, the crew, you know, your buddies, your fishing buddies. Do you love me more than you love them? Maybe. Maybe he means, you know, a couple of nights ago, Peter, you said that you loved me more than they loved me. You said, even if they deserted me, you would never desert me. Maybe he means that. Maybe he just means, do you love me more than these fish? Maybe He's saying, Jesus, do you love me more than your comfort zone? Do you love me more than this place you go to when things are not looking good for you? Whatever one, Jesus says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And then Jesus repeats the question. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Why did he ask a third time? Well, it says Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. Why? Does Jesus just enjoy sticking the knife in, making him feel bad? Or is it that he knows that's what Peter has been doing? And Peter needs to unsay it. For every time, he needs to say he loves God, that he loves Jesus, for every time he denied Jesus. I think that's what he's doing. And he replies, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. (coughs) And that's it. No probation, no performance improvement plan. Jesus did not run this by HR. It doesn't have any timetable. You know, in the first 30 days, Jesus will, you know, Peter will do this. In the next 90 days, Jesus, Peter will do this. It doesn't have any clear, measurable goals that Peter's output will improve by this amount or his denials will reduce by this amount. There's none of the things we would expect to see in a probation. Jesus is not putting Peter on probation. He's reinstating him. Flat out. And he doesn't even say, Peter, say you're sorry. He doesn't even say, Peter, give one of those non-apology apologies you see on TV. You know, mistakes were made. I feel bad about my family. He doesn't even say that. He doesn't say anything. He just says, do you love me? He says, Peter, are we good? Is there anything else I still need to do to show you how much I love you? Is there anything that is hindering you loving me? Peter, do you love me? What else can I do, Peter, so you can love me? Peter says, I already do. And that's the only question. Not say you're sorry. 
Not beg for forgiveness, no performance plan. He just says, feed my lambs. Go back. I've given you a role in the mission that I have. The mission of God to save souls. And he says, go to it. So what do we do with this? Well, you know, the other disciples were there. They were at the beach, even if they weren't part of that conversation. And I think the lesson for the church is that if Jesus isn't holding people to the kind of standard we might expect him to, the kind of standard that our HR departments would, if Jesus isn't putting people on probation, then neither should we. Neither did they. We can't have higher standards for people than Jesus did. That if Jesus lets them off the mat, we have to let them off the mat too. We have to involve them in what we're doing as a community of the people of God. And more than that, we have to let ourselves off the mat. Because maybe you're one of those judgmental Christians that I hear about. That sometimes I am. But I think the person we judge the most is the one who looks back at us in the mirror. And we need to cling to the truth that Jesus is not putting us on probation. Jesus is not giving us a timetable to get our act together. Jesus is telling Peter, look, here's the deal. It's not, if you get better, I'll reinstate you. But I'm reinstating you because I want you to get better. And if I don't reinstate you, you will never, ever get better. Jesus is not putting us on probation. Jesus is reinstating us. Jesus is reinstating you. He's reinstating me. He's calling us to feed his sheep. He's calling us to care as much about the people around us and the people out there as he does. Jesus did not come to put us on probation. He came to bring us to life. Let's pray. Heavenly God, we give you thanks that we're not probationary candidates for eventual approval, that Jesus has already loved us. And more than that, he asks us if there's anything else he still needs to do to demonstrate his love for us. Lord, I pray that you would help people answer that question honestly. If there are people here who don't know yet whether they love Jesus, that you would answer that question. You would give them the the evidence they need of your love for them so that they can answer honestly, Lord. And for those of us who already, like Jesus, say, yes, I've denied you. I've denied you with my words or I've denied you with my life. But I do love you. Lord, that you would give us clarity that that we would cling to the hope that we are not on probation, but you are calling us to be involved in your work. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.